0: Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you want to turn over there. Um, Started into this subject last week. Pastor David kind of got us us rolling. Paul has just kind of finished addressing the of something that was a great concern to this this church in Thessalonica. They had questions about what happens to the dead before Jesus returns. Uh, the, The thought was: are they just out of luck? Do they miss out on the kingdom? And so Paul assures them that, that those who have died will rise again, and in fact, they get to do that before before those who are alive do. So they get to go first, and so the order of events from chapter four are go like this: If you look back at verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, as Pastor David explained last week, there's kind of two extremes that Christians seem to gravitate to when it comes to end times. They either make them everything, or they make them nothing. They they, they you know either avoid it completely because these things are hard to understand and maybe just not worth the effort to try to figure out, or they focus entirely too much on it and become infatuated with it. You can go on YouTube and, and go on all kinds of rabbit trails of these experts who kind of, you know, they're like amateur sleuths, that, that, like they're trying to solve the national treasure puzzle. You know, if they put enough pieces together, you, they'll come up with some kind of, you know, the the, the day and the hour and, and all figure out all these different details about what everything means. And this is how we get books like, I don't know if you guys remember this one, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Remember that one? Well guess what? They were wrong. So, amateur sleuth hour doesn't always work very well. So, what I found is that both of these extremes, making it everything or making it nothing can be very unhealthy for Christians. We should not ignore studying end times because it's absolutely glorious. And we should not obsess over it because a lot of these things are just largely unknowable. But the bottom line is we want to be as prepared as possible for what's coming. And we want everybody should be eagerly anticipating His return. It's something we should think about every day because when you continually think about it, it changes your perspective. It changes your outlook on everything. It fills your day with perspective, with direction, with hope, with purpose. And, and that's a good thing for the Christian to be thinking about. But um, a couple of ground rules before we get into these things because even though end times things should be a fantastic thing to talk about, sometimes they can be um, things that we get into fights about. So, the first, first ground rule is be humble. Um, I've been wrong about these things before and there's a good chance I'll be wrong about them again. Be humble about the way we come down, the way, where we land on some of these things. We're talking about future events. I don't know how many of you guys are great at predicting future events. I'm not. Um, these, there's some things we can't be certain of and we should never let things that we can't be certain of divide us. So it's okay for us when we're talking about these things to agree to disagree. We need to remain um, in fellowship with each other. We need to remain loving toward each other, uh, even if somebody doesn't see it our way. So, that's kind of something we want to agree on. It's funny because Paul in chapter 4 said that we're supposed to comfort each other with these words. These things are, are ways that we can comfort each other, not 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 beat each other up, not tear each other apart, um, but but actually comfort each other with them. So, if we're stressing each other out, if we're fighting about them, we're doing it wrong, and it's not pleasing to the Lord. So, this should be a joyous thing for us to talk about. Um the, the other thing that we need to do a ground rule is make sure that we stand firm on what we know. Uh, we might not all get the details right. We might not get that all correct. But we can be sure of, of the one thing that Jesus is coming back, that He is going to establish His kingdom just as He promised. Uh, that's something we can stand on. It's an essential. It's not something that uh, I'll budge on. That one I won't, you know, it's like I will go to the mat on that one, not, not figuratively or not, not literally because I'm too out of shape to wrestle. But metaphorically, I will go to the mat on that one, okay? Okay. The other one is that we need to be teachable. I think it's, um, it's helpful for us when we go to the Word of God to, to be teachable every time. If we come with preconceived ideas, and if we come kind of like with the, you know trying to look for something that um, I was guilty of that. I came into it looking for a specific thing, and, and it made it a lot more difficult to see things. So try to think of what the reader would have naturally understood when they, when they went into these things. Um, be consistent with the phrases. And that we that we see. So, for instance, the coming of the Lord. When we look at that word, the parousia in the Greek, the coming of the Lord. Be consistent with how you how you use it throughout the Scripture. If if it's one thing here and another thing here, we have to be kind of careful with that. Same thing with the Day of the Lord. Same thing with phrases like, uh, rapture is not in the Bible, but the idea of raptura is a Latin word for caught up or gathered or when we rise, things like that. Try to be consistent with them. Um, if we start to have to do gymnastics to continue to hold the view that we hold, something's kind of off. And then at last, I just want to say this. Our goal is not to convince you that our view is the right view and that your view is the wrong view. Um, we have different views on these things. Uh, I, and I'll just tip my hand and say that I know that I have a different view than, than some of you guys do when it comes to the end times. My goal isn't to like win this argument. My goal is to make sure that you're as prepared as possible for what may come Especially if you hold to a view that maybe you think it's going to go down a certain way, and then it doesn't go down a certain way. Um, and and I'll, just be, I'll just say right out, you know, we're talking about the pre-tribulation rapture. This is an area that I used to believe in strongly, and I used to fight for, and, and then I kind of shifted away from it. And the only reason that I mention that is because if, if it's not correct, I could still be wrong. And quite frankly, um, if you could convince me that that's still the right view, it's the view I want to believe <laughs> really is. It's a great view. It's the one I I would vote for if I got to vote. But if it's not the correct view and somebody's still left here, I mean, I just think about that. If you're banking on that and then you're here, that's going to disillusion a lot of people. And so my hope, is if, if you just leave here today with the idea that maybe, maybe that there's another way to look at this, and, and, you know, if that were to happen someday, you know, you're standing in that period of time and you're going, hey, I remember this weird pastor one time in Lapine that said that there was a chance that that might not be the right view, then I feel like, okay, that, we, that we've maybe done something that's, that's worthwhile. And again, I know I could be wrong about this, so bear with me on this. Um, in case you weren't here last week, Pastor David uh, taught through the section of Scripture that teaches about what we refer to as the rapture. The rapture describes the point in time when Christians are caught up to meet Jesus, and it describes the time when our bodies will be changed from mortal to immortal. And we also refer to this it is the resurrection. So for, for anyone who dies prior to the rapture, their bodies are here in the ground and their spirit is with the Lord, and they need to meet up again so that they can be glorified and turned into their heavenly body. For those that are remain when Jesus returns, our body and soul are still together right now. So we don't have to have that happen, but we still need to be changed. And so, those who um, we need to be changed into our glorious uh, heavenly body. And so, all of this happens in a moment it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye. Everybody agrees that the Rapture is going to happen, but not everybody agrees on the, the timing of it, when it will occur. And so, this is where we get phrases like pre-trib Rapture and post-trib Rapture. They all are biblical theories that attempt to explain the timing of these events. The Bible also talks about a time of great tribulation. Um, and that happens prior to the Lord's return, when the world unites under one leader, the Antichrist, and they, um, they basically um, think that He brings us peace and safety. This is a time when the people of God are persecuted like never before, and many are martyred because of their allegiance to Christ. And then at the end of this time of tribulation, the wrath of God is poured out on those who reject God. So, that's where you have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Oh, my. right. Pre-trib rapture believe that Jesus returns secretly to pull Christians out of the world before the tribulation period begins. Post-trib people believe that Christians are kept through that period of time and raptured at the second coming of Christ. Now, the question isn't which view do you prefer? I think we would all vote for option one, right? Right. That's the better view for us. Not going through that sounds fantastic. So it's not which which view do we, we prefer, it's which one do we believe is more biblical. And that's really the question we need to answer. Now, I'm just going to say this because again, I'm a former pre-trib guy and I remember the problems. Both views have problems, don't misunderstand. But But these are the things that you have to deal with. If you hold to a pre-trib position, you necessarily have to have two comings of Jesus, a secret one and a public one two resurrections, one for all those who have died before the tribulation period and one for those who died during the tribulation period. And you also have to have two last trumpets. Um, and, and you know what I'm talking about. If you've studied this out, you, you, you know exactly what I'm referring to. Um, I was told in Bible college that there is a last trumpet, like when he, oh when it says last trumpet there, that's the last trumpet for the church. And when it says last trumpet here, that's and that's what I mean about gymnastics. It was like, well, that sounds a little weird. If you hold to the post-tribulation view, you have one coming, one rapture, or resurrection, and one last trumpet. Post-trib view has problems, and we'll we'll talk about some of those as we go on, but those those are kind of the differences. So, Paul is continuing on with more end times information that we will get into here in chapter 5. But now instead of talking about the coming of the Lord, the parousia, he's talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a very familiar Old Testament um, phrase that refers to an end of the world event when God comes to judge the world, destroy evil, and vindicate His people. This would have been a familiar phrase to, to Paul and to other Jewish people. No doubt some of you guys were challenged last week by Pastor David's message if you were here and heard it and probably have already been challenged by some of what I said this morning. Um, I remember going through that myself. I remember being challenged with these things at one point in my Christian life. I attended a Bible college. It was called Moody Northwest. It was in Spokane, Washington. And, and I basically was taught that there is one correct view pre-trib and there are a bunch of dumb views that dumb people have. That's And I'm, that's really how they taught it. And so it wasn't hard for me. I thought, well, I don't want to be dumb. So I'm not going to hold to those views. I'm going to hold to the one correct view. And I didn't really question it. It just, it it was also happened to be the view that I wanted. (laughs) That's the one I liked the best because I, um, you know, I'm still 100% in favor of not going through hard times of any kind ever. That's just My nature. I don't like to go through anything difficult, let alone something called the Great Tribulation. If there's a way for me to avoid that, sign me up for that, right? I'll vote for that every time. So, here's what happened. The problem occurred several years later when I was challenged by some of these so-called dummies who had a different view. And again, I was told that there was no no point in even looking at those things because they weren't very good. They came to me and said, can you go to the Scriptures forgetting what you think is there, and still defend your view, which I was all too eager to do. I remember thinking, I'll show these guys what's up. You know, they will rue the day they met Brent Maxwell. I'm going to tear these guys to shreds. That's what I thought. And one of the first sections that I went to was here in 1 Thessalonians. This is what I thought was going to be, like, this thing that would anchor my argument and, and be that solid thing that I needed to, to come back and show them. And I was shocked by what I read. Instead of it being that, that anchor... It was kind of like you know when you when you find a little piece of a thread and you start to pull on it? That's what it felt like. It was like all of this stuff just this is where it started for me to start to come apart. And I was just I was kind of thinking, how did I not see this before? And the reason is because I wasn't really looking for it and I didn't really want to see it. Now this is the section that I was taught, chapter five, that defended the idea of a secret rapture or the first stage of Jesus' coming, where he sneaks in like a thief in the night to remove the church from the world. And then everyone left is, is you know wondering where did all the Christians go? Why are all the churches empty? Why are the cars you know abandoned? You know why have I been left behind? You know you've seen the movies, you've read the books. That was that was what I thought this was describing. Now as I read through the first five verses of chapter five, see if you can kind of track what the dilemma that I was facing. Verse one says, "Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come." like a thief in the night. There it is. That's what I was looking for, you know. Woo! But we have to keep reading. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So Jesus will come as a thief. But who does he come like a thief to in that passage? Who is unprepared and surprised by his coming? This is the part that I went, what? what it, oop, it, you know, it, that's where it started to happen. Not the Christian. No, they won't be expecting it. We will be, according to what this says. You know, it says that basically nonbelievers are going to be kind of bragging about peace and security. And then sudden destruction comes upon them, and there is no escape. That sounds exactly like what happens at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes in judgment. It's a terrifying description, by the way. He likens it to a woman, uh, when a woman starts to feel contractions, and once it starts, there's no going back. Nothing can be done to, you know, to stop the inevitable outcome. That's what it's going to be like for the non believer when Jesus comes. It's too late. So, this is teaching us that the non-believer will not be prepared for the day of the Lord, but the Christian, according to Paul, should be. And he's talking to the Christians there as though they will be there when it happens. Notice that. It's just, you know, he's saying like, you're going to see this. Verse 4, he says this, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The plain sense of what he says is that we will be there too. We just won't be surprised by it. And he starts this chapter out by saying that there isn't any need for him to say anything about the times and the seasons surrounding the day of the Lord. Well, why can he say this? Because he's already taught them about it, and because he, he knows that the Bible talks about this stuff as well. The Bible does say very clearly that no man knows the day or the hour. We, we all know that. And to try to figure it out is pointless. We will not be able to figure out the day and the hour. But it does say that we can and should know times and seasons. Those are much broader, you know, it doesn't pinpoint the day and the hour by any means, but it gives us an idea. And this is confirmed for us in Matthew twenty four, which is called the Olivet Discords. This is where Jesus is talking to his his disciple about these very things. Now he concludes this passage by saying what I just said, but concerning the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But that doesn't mean we won't have any clues about the sign of the times and the seasons leading up to His coming, because in that same chapter, it begins with the disciples coming privately to Jesus and asking Him this, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the the age? And then Jesus goes on to explain to them what's going to happen. And pay attention as we go through this section. as to, as to the things He says. And I want you to also keep in mind, because it says there, this is really important, it says that the disciples came to Him privately. In Bible college I was taught that the Olivet Discourse was Jesus talking to a large group of Jewish people. He wasn't; he didn't have Christians in mind, He was talking to the Jewish people. And that's why He was explaining all these things. That's not what it tells us. It says the disciples, the future leaders of the church came to Him privately and said, Jesus tell us what it's going to be like when you come. And that's who He's talking to. Um, if you um if you were to flip over to second Thessalonians you see the same type of thing and I'm not we're not going to do that because I don't want to steal the thunder of the guy that's going to be there shortly but if you look at second Thessalonians chapter 2 you see this exact same concern the Christians are, are asking Paul hey did we we might have missed the second coming and we're worried about that what you know and that's so Paul has to address this they think they missed Jesus's return and he explains to them starting in Chapter 2, verse 1, this is what it says there, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the parousia, and our being gathered to Him, sounds like the rapture, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, you see how He's taken the coming of the Lord, the parousia, and the day of the Lord and put them into the same event, important. He goes on to describe then, after that, all the stuff that we would attribute to the great tribulation. He says, no, you didn't miss it, guys. Remember, I told you, you you'd have to see the son of perdition. You need to see the abomination of desolation. He starts to tell them all those things. Why would he be telling the church that if if they're not going to be there? Okay, back to Matthew 24. This is what Jesus told his disciples when they said, tell us about what it's going to be like when you return. Tell us what signs to look for. Starting in verse 4, Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false pro- prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Boy, does that sound familiar right now. Wow. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Um, so, Jesus is saying a couple things there that are really important one, things are going to ramp up like birth pains. The closer it come, gets to His coming, things are going to intensify, intensify, intensify. And, and we're beginning to see some of those things. He also said Jesus isn't going to come back until the last person believes. That's the idea there. So, Jesus knows, every, you know, He knows the beginning from the end. When the last person comes, that's when He'll come back. So, He's waiting. It says He's not slow in keeping His promise, but He's waiting for everybody to come to repentance that will come. So, I find it fascinating that that when the Bible talks about what things are going to be like when it gets closer to the Lord's return, does it describe things getting better or getting worse? (laughs) Getting worse, right? And we see this stuff happening, and it seems like a lot of Christians are like bent on trying to make that stop. Like they're doing everything in their power to make sure it doesn't get worse. And and all I'm saying is that things might be going according to plan. This might mean that we're getting closer to Him coming back. And I don't like things getting worse. Believe me, I don't. But don't freak out. Maybe this is exactly the way things are supposed to be happening right now because it means He's nearer to to coming back. So, Jesus continues with more of the things that they should look for in Matthew 24 as far as His coming goes. And, And this section, just so you know, I know I'm talking a lot about weird things here, but Stay with me if you can. I believe this section contains what we would refer to as dualistic prop- prophecy. So Jesus is talking about two different things, but he's talking about them at once. This is about 40 years before AD 70, and in AD 70, Titus comes in and destroys the temple. And there's warnings in, in here for God's people then to, to head for the hills. When you see this stuff happening, don't run back and grab your coat. If you're pregnant, pray that it won't be on the Sabbath. All these things that he's telling them because it's about to go down there. But there's another hill that we don't quite see until we get past the first one in AD 70 that are still future, things that haven't happened yet. So, there's two, two different things going on here. And I think it becomes clear when you read it because some of the things that he describes definitely didn't happen in AD 70. So, in verse 15 he says, So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then he says, let the reader understand, that would part of... Titus would have fulfilled part of that. There's still something future coming. And that's when he tells them to head for the hills. And then in verse 21, he starts to talk about something different. For then there will be great tribulations such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Something like we've never seen and never will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's not possible, praise God. But if it were, we could be deceived by these. And then I love that he says, see, I have told you beforehand. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) See, I've told you beforehand. He gives us a heads up. So gracious of Him to let us know what's kind of, kind, of, kind of coming. You know, that's a good thing. Verse 26, So if they say to you, look, He is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then He describes what His coming is going to look like. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, he's telling him there, there's, there's no way you will miss this. Have you ever been a dark night and you see like a lightning bolt go? you can't miss it. He's talking about something that's going to wrap the sky from east to west. Everybody will see it. There will be no way to mistake His coming when it happens. That's the point. He goes on to describe it in greater detail in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. What I just read sounds a whole lot like what David taught last week in in chapter 4. The, the, the similarities are so clear if you're just you know willing to see it. His coming involves the angels, a loud trumpet call, the gathering of the elect. That's what he's talking about. And, and, and this is happening at the end of the tribulation period. That's when he's describing it. And again, I'm not trying to convince you that I'm right. I'm just saying consider the possibility because it's, it seems like it could be that. Now, all that's to say that we are not in darkness for that day to surprise us like a thief. He has told us beforehand so that we will have an idea of the times and the seasons. We won't know everything, but we'll have some signposts to kind of look at. I, for one, am very grateful for these passages and that Jesus kept us in the loop when it comes to these things. Because I'm the kind of person that I really don't like the unknown. I don't like, I don't like things that are kind of uncertain. At all. I just saw I heard a quote the other day. I was watching some TV show and, and it was Sam Elliott and he said, I want I wanted to do a Sam Elliott voice, but I don't think I can. He's just got such a cool voice. The most terrifying thing. It was like the most terrifying thing on this planet is the unknown. And you could argue with that, but I think there's some truth to it. That's what freaks people out. And Jesus says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna keep you in the dark. I love that. People right now in the world are scared. Things are so Uncertain right now. Things are so up in the air. The future is so uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. If you just get on the news and start looking at how volatile things seem right now, it's pretty terrifying. We don't have to be terrified. We don't have to live in fear. We have not been left in the dark at all. We know the plan and we know how to be prepared because Jesus has told us, His word has told us what we can look for. So, how do we live now in light of Jesus' certain return? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 6, says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Christians are called to live their lives as though Jesus could arrive at any moment. Um, have you ever been so excited to see somebody like like one of your kids is coming home or something they're going to arrive a little late? You just can't sleep. You're so excited to see them you have to stay up. You can't, like you're just too, too hyped up about it. This is kind of what he's describing here. That kind of expectant anticipation that we're supposed to have. Jesus is coming back and we can't wait. So, so you're just, you know, beside yourself. Um, living our lives with the belief that it, he could return at any moment soon, like any time now, is very sobering. It kind of jolts you. It keeps you on high alert, right? That's what it's supposed to do. I want to point out this book, the stuff that he said to these guys was written in AD fifty, roughly, about two thousand years. If it if he could say that to them, be ready, you guys. It could come at any time. How much more is it true for you and I right now in this room? How much how much more ready should we be? And I know people would say that's you know two thousand years. The the Lord sure is slow in keeping His promise. The Bible answers that, you know, with the with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. So that means he's been gone a couple of days. From his economy, it's not been long at all. And if they were supposed to be ready in eighty fifty and anticipating it, how much more eager should we be? And how more excited you know, we should be on the edge of our seat, just you know, kind of keeping our eye on the horizon. That's that's how we should be living our lives right now. The contrast Paul gives between those who are going to meet Jesus as their Savior and those who are going to be judged by Him are very telling. One lives in the light, one in the darkness. One is of the day and the other of the night. One is awake and the other is asleep. One is sober and the other is drunk. Which describes you in regards to your readiness for Jesus' return? Are you ready? You need to be. If you're not, you still have time to be, right? If you don't know Him yet, you still have time to bow your knee and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If you do know Him, the time is short. We need to make the most of it. Every hour we get, every chance we get, we need to be aware of that. Now, of course, one of the major arguments about the idea that the Christians will have to go through the tribulation period is what we read in verse 9, that God has not destined us for wrath. And there's also uh, Revelation 3:10. This is one that will be brought up a lot too. I used to bring these up, so I know these pretty well. Um, where Jesus tells Christians in that church that they will be kept from the hour of trial that is coming upon the earth. And so, how do we reconcile that? Uh, how can Christians go through the tribulation period if God's wrath is present there? And I would point out two things we know to be true. First thing is this: don't don't confuse persecution and wrath. Two different things. One comes from man. One comes from God. God promised that Christians wouldn't have to go through wrath, but it doesn't promise that we won't have to go through persecution or hard times. In fact, He said we would have to go through those things. And much of what happens during the Tribulation period would fall under that category. You know, that's, I think that's why sometimes people think we'll miss out on that we won't have to go through it is because we don't have to go through hard times. No, that's not true. just the wrath part we have to answer. And I would also point out that there are several examples in the Bible of God's people being protected through wrath. He doesn't have a hard time with that. It's, it's not difficult for him to do. Think of the Passover, right? The angel of death comes over. It affected everybody but those who were marked. Right? Think about Noah's Ark. He can protect his people through wrath. There's even an example in Revelation, which I love. This is when the scorpion locusts, whatever those things are, come out to play. I don't want to see those ever, but this is what it says in Revelation 9.4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So God can do that. He can protect us from wrath. Um, There's also a pretty good chance, by the way, that when all this starts to go down, that there won't be many Christians around at that point. They'll probably mostly be gone because we read in Revelation 7-9 about a multitude of martyrs that cannot be numbered. And John wants to know who they are. And, and he's told that they are made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That right there tells you that, because again, the pre-trib dispensational view says that it's only the Jewish people that, are, that, are, that God is focused on at that time, and, not, and the Christians are, you know, the church is gone. But this is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are there. And when John asks who they are, he's told that they're the ones that came out of the Great Tribulation. They they were killed during that time. So, will there be many Christians left at that point? I don't know. There's even a curious question that Jesus, like a rhetorical question, he asks at the end of one of his parables. It doesn't really have much to do with the parable. You've probably seen it before in Luke 18.8. Jesus says this, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? And I've always thought, what does that mean? And then in light of this, it it might mean there won't be any believers left when all that goes down. Whatever the case may be, we can take great comfort in knowing that as Christians, we do not have to worry about God's wrath coming upon us. And that's because it went on to Jesus instead. Jesus fully satisfied God's wrath. And that means we don't have to take, we never have to face that because he faced it for us. That's why verse 9 tells us that we have not been appointed for wrath because Jesus took that appointment on our behalf. So that's what the word propitiation means. It's a great word in the Bible. You've probably seen it and thought, what in the word is that? It just means an appeasement of God's wrath. Jesus absorbed that on our behalf so that we don't have to. We will never have to go through what we deserve because Jesus did it for us. We can also be encouraged by the fact that Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us and that he's given us the presence of his spirit to endure whatever comes our way. Verse 8 tells us to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope for salvation. You see that? This armor will protect us. Faith, love, and hope. I've seen that someplace before too, right? It's 1 Corinthians 13. That's it's pretty cool. Faith, how will faith protect us? I know that Jesus is coming again and that He has prepared a place for me. Love. I know that I am loved by God because Jesus went to the cross for me and secured my position in His kingdom. He cares what happens to me. He proved that because He sent His Son to die for me. Is He going to leave me now in the middle of something hard? No, he, He loves me. He cares for me. And hope. I know that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He can and will keep me safe for all eternity no matter what we face. So I love how this section ends. Verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This stuff should be an encouragement to us, not, not something that frightens us, a wake-up call for certain but an encouragement to us. We are supposed to encourage each other with these words. Jesus is coming. Of that we can be sure. Amen? Live as though it could be today. (laughs) Filled with faith. Filled with love. And filled with hope. Um, Father, thank you so much that that you have not kept us in the dark. Lord, yes, these things are hard to understand, but you've given us so much that we can look at so so that we're not just unaware, Lord. Thank you for being good to us in that regard. Thank you that Jesus took the wrath that we deserved, that, that you put that on your son instead of us and that he was willing to do that. Thank you that, that we are saved by placing our faith in that so that we never have to face your judgment, Lord. And what a gift that is. And we know that that came at a great cost, uh, that your son paid that price, and we are in awe of that, Lord. We pray that we would put our faith and our trust in him no matter what. And we pray, Lord, that we would be prepared for whatever may come. Thank you that we, we know the living God who never sleeps or slumbers, who never is caught off guard, who is never surprised. And you have a plan and it's going perfectly the way it's supposed to go. And we can rest in that no matter what comes our way. And we just trust you, Lord, and we are in awe of you. and We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.